a young boy lived <clears throat> way out in the country with his with his family, where they had to use an outhouse, which the boy hated. <clears throat> it was <clears throat> hot in the summer. It was cold in the winter, and it was always smelly. The outhouse was, was located near the creek, and so the boy decided that when the opportunity presented itself, he would push it into the water. <clears throat> well, one day, after a heavy spring rain, the creek swelled over its banks, and so the boy pushed the outhouse into the current. <clears throat> Later that night, his dad told the boy they needed to make a trip out to the woodshed. The boy knew what that meant, as I suspect you do too, right? I've been to the woodshed a few occasions. <laughs> it, it meant punishment. The boy asked why, to which the dad replied, <clears throat> because someone pushed the outhouse into the creek. And I think that someone was you. Was it? The boy responded, it was. And then he added, remember George Washington's father asked him if he had chopped down the cherry tree. He didn't get into trouble because he told the truth. That is correct, said the dad. But his father was not in the cherry tree when he cut it down. <clears throat> Takes a while. <clears throat> that, that was a, a, a funny little story. But I, I will tell you I hesitated to use it because there is absolutely nothing funny about this morning's passage. I only chose to use that funny little story because the story, just like our passage, presents a very clear truth. That being, there are consequences for our behavior. Inescapable consequences. We have been working our way through the book of Revelation, and now we find ourselves near the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And the time has come for the Lord 
to clean house, so to speak. To clean house. From top to bottom. Just before he returns to set up his own earthly kingdom. We have made it to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation 16. So, turn there in your Bibles, Revelation 16, and we will begin with verse 1. Revelation 16, verse 1. I think it's up behind me. Where do you go, Kim? <laughs> the Apostle John tells us, Then, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Last week, we left off with the seven angels lined up in heaven waiting for the command to pour out their bowls of wrath. Remember that? And now the command to go and pour is given. And if you notice, the command was given to the seven angels at the same time. Okay. At the same time, which suggests that these judgments will be delivered one right after the other, one on top of the other. It's fast. It's rapid fire in nature. We're told that when the first bowl was poured out upon the land, loathsome and malignant sores broke out. Or described in another way, these sores are are ugly, painful, festering boils. They are not natural. There are no medical treatments. There is no relief. They will not go away. And these boils only appear on those who worship the image of the Antichrist and have taken his mark, the mark of the beast. And as a reminder, the mark of the beast is always associated with a person's worship of the Antichrist. They are connected in the Bible. And I want to make a point here. I think the mark is not the real issue here. It's the worship that it represents. Worship which speaks to the direction of one's heart has always been the real issue. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike, 
The heart of the problem has always been a problem of the heart. And in this passage, those being affected are those who have given their hearts, given their worship to the Antichrist instead of Jesus Christ. As public evidence of their worship, they took his mark. And as a public consequence, they are covered in ugly, painful, festering boils from head to toe. Now, if the boils are not bad enough, on top of them comes the next bowl. Again, these are rapid fire in occurrence. Rapid fire. And we are told in verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like, became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. The contents of the second bowl were poured out by the next angel into the sea. So it's judgment against salt water here. It's judgment against salt water. And if you think about it, this second bowl judgment is similar to the second trumpet judgment. We read about in chapter 8. Remember that? If you recall, with the blowing of the second trumpet, a third part of the seas became like blood. A third part of all sea life died. And a third of the shipping had been demolished. But with this second bowl judgment, the devastation is total. It's complete. Every living thing in the sea died. Everything died. And John says the water became something like the blood of a dead man. Meaning, the salt water was similar to the rotting fluids of a decomposing body. All the world's oceans and seas, think about this, all the world's oceans and seas that cover most of the earth will become nothing like dark, coagulated, stinking cesspools of death. Hard to imagine, isn't it? It's hard to imagine the devastation pictured here. But maybe there are those who think they could survive without the oceans and the seas. At least for a little while. But here's the question. Could they survive without fresh water? 
Let's continue beginning with verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you have judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters. So here we are talking about all fresh water sources. And they became blood. Again, this is similar to chapter 8, where the third trumpet sounded and it impacted a third of the world's fresh water. But this is something entirely different. This is all the fresh water sources, meaning there will be nothing safe to drink. Now, maybe you are a prepper. You know what a prepper is? Okay. Maybe you're a prepper. And you're already thinking about storing up massive supplies of bottled water in some underground bunker to get you through this. But that will be an exercise in futility. Because if this third bowl judgment is anything like the second plague in Egypt, described in Exodus chapter 7, which I suspect it will be, even the fresh water that had been stored in containers had turned to blood. Remember, this is not natural. This is supernatural. It's God's doing, and his consequences will be inescapable. So you can store your bottled water. doesn't matter. No doubt, people will question, why is God doing this? Why is God being so harsh to which the angel will say in effect, God, they wanted blood. They wanted blood and they took it from your saints and your messengers. Now, they will get more blood than they had bargained for. They will reap what they have sown. Yes, this judgment is severe, but it is also true and righteous. That's what we are told. 
meaning his judgment is based on the true facts and it is carried out in a just and right way. Or said in another way, the punishment fits the crime. It is fair. Or as the angel said, they deserve it. They deserve it. Remember, these are people who were given many warnings and given every opportunity to turn to Christ, but they rejected him and devoted themselves to the Antichrist. They were given a choice. God's forgiveness or God's fairness. That was the choice. God's forgiveness or God's fairness. They rejected His forgiveness. And therefore, by default, they get His fairness. They get what they deserve. Now, maybe the people of the earth, now parched with thirst, turn their attention to the skies and seek relief in the form of rain. But rain is not what they get. Instead, beginning with verse 8, we are told they get something else. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And, man, they did not repent as to give him glory. Instead of catching drops of rain from the sky, the fourth bowl is poured upon the sun and the unrepentant people of the earth are scorched with searing rays. If you recall back in chapter 8, during the sounding of the fourth trumpet, we were told that a third of the heavenly bodies the sun and the moon and the stars were impacted so that they would be darkened. But not this time. This time, with this judgment, comes just the opposite. This time, there is an intensification of heat from the sun that burns people with fire. Now, if you noticed, we are not told that the scorching causes death. Rather, it's torment. It's torment. It's another taste of the terrible suffering they will experience in hell if they do not repent. And surprisingly, these people still refuse to do so. They curse the name of God who had the power over these judgments. That is, they acknowledged 
they acknowledged that God was the source of their judgment. They knew the truth. They acknowledged it. They knew He was in control, and yet they would still not repent and turn to Him. Mind-boggling. You know, the fact that repentance is even mentioned here is even mentioned here near the end of the tribulation period suggests that God is still graciously extending his offer of mercy right up until the very end. He's still doing that. And still, people curse God and blame Him for the devastation and the pain and the death they have brought on themselves. That's hardcore, isn't it? That's hardcore. So four angels have poured out their bowls. And it seems that nature has has begun to completely unravel. The impact on human life would be unimaginable. And yet, the Antichrist is still in control. But all of this begins to change, as we will see, beginning with verse 10. And we are told... Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. This is God's judgment against the throne of the beast. A direct hit on the dominion of the Antichrist. John tells us that in spite of the scorching rays from the sun, the kingdom of the Antichrist will be plunged into darkness, which I take to mean that literal darkness will fall upon his headquarters, upon his seat of power and control. If you think about it, God has done this before. During the ninth plague, when darkness fell upon Egypt. You remember that? This is how the darkness was described in Egypt back in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. 
They did not see one another. Nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. In Egypt, the darkness was thick. We're told it could be felt. You could almost cut it with a knife, so to speak. And I think this is the same kind of darkness that John is describing for us here. It's a darkness that is stifling. It's suffocating. It creates confusion and chaos for those who are enveloped in it. Have you ever been in a cavern or a Carlsbad cavern or some deep cave? They take you way down in the, in the cave. Everybody's got their flashlights on and whatever. And then the, the, the guy who's leading you will say, turn everything off. It's just, you can't even see your hand. It's just absolute, complete darkness. That's what I'm thinking being pictured here. But it's thick. It's darkness that can be felt. Which is kind of eerie to think about it. We're told that people gnawed their tongues because they were in such pain. Pain from their sores and pain from the lack of drinking water and pain from the scorching sun. And once again, for the second time, John tells us the response of the people. Still, they cursed God and refused to repent. As far as I can tell, this is nothing but total defiance. Raising your fist at God. They are only hurting themselves. Then we come to the sixth bowl. Beginning with verse 12. We are told. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates. And its water was dried up, so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they were spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. The sixth angel poured out his bowl and two things happened. Two things. First, the Euphrates River dries up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. That phrase, kings from the east, literally means the kings of the sunrise. Kings of the sunrise who are believed to come from the Orient, from Asia. Most likely, 
powerful countries like China and North Korea. Countries that currently oppose Christianity and persecute those who stand for Christ. Now, geologically today, the Euphrates River serves as a natural boundary. It's a natural boundary between the Holy Land and Asia. And to march troops and to move military equipment used in in conventional warfare, like they're using in Russia against the Ukrainians, to march troops and to drive equipment in a conventional war from Asia to Israel, you would have to go through the Euphrates River. But we are told that boundary will supernaturally be dried up, removed by the sixth angel. Secondly, John also tells us that he sees three unclean spirits that look like frogs to him. Coming out of Satan, coming out of the Antichrist, and coming out of the false prophet. We are told these demonic spirits go throughout the whole world influencing the leaders of the world to assemble their armed forces together for one final great battle. And beginning with verse 15, we are told where the battle will occur and who the battle is ultimately against. Verse 15. Behold. You might know this verse. Behold. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So this last great battle, we commonly refer to as the Battle of Armageddon, will be prompted by the unholy trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And it will involve the military forces of the world. And it will occur in the place in Hebrew called Armageddon, which is actually two words when put together mean the mountain of Megiddo. The mountain of Megiddo. This great battle will occur in an area about 60 miles north of Jerusalem on the nearby plains of the valley of Jezreel. The place Napoleon called the most perfect natural battlefield on the earth. The valley of Jezreel is one of the greatest battlefields mentioned in the Bible. Over 200 battles have occurred on this plain. And if you remember, just to drop a name, Gideon and his 300 fought in this area. Now, I don't want to look at 
I don't want to overlook verse 15. Because it is here that we, we see the very close connection between the last great battle, the battle of Armageddon, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. For when these forces gather together for battle, it will be Jesus whom they fight against when he returns. We're told that Jesus will come quickly like a thief. And quite frankly, the battle, if you want to call it that, because it's not much of a battle, will be over just as quick. And once we get to chapter 19, we will talk more about this battle. Okay? We have one more bowl to go through. So let's look at these last verses, beginning with verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and they blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, because its plague was extremely severe. The seventh angel poured out his contents of his bowl into the atmosphere. And immediately a loud voice was heard that came out of the temple saying, It is done. It is done. Meaning, the wrath of God is finished with this last bowl. With this last bowl, a storm was produced with flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, and we are told that the greatest earthquake in the history of man will shake the planet to its core. And as a result of this earthquake, the great city was split into three parts. I want to tell you... I had a lot of momentum preparing this message. I was doing well. Until I got to the subject of this great city. I spent hours trying to identify this city 
And as a result, I concluded, I have issues. For some reason, I just could not let this go until I found an answer in the Bible that I was satisfied with. So, yes, I have issues. Now for the answer. Bible commentators are divided about the identity of this great city. Some say it is Jerusalem, and I can see that. Many conclude this city is Rome. Is Rome, the seat of the revived Roman Empire. We'll talk about that later. And still others suggest it is Babylon, which seems to be a city and a system that represents the empire of the Antichrist. And after hours of mind-numbing study, I believe, the best I can tell, in context with the judgments, I believe it is Babylon. Okay? I believe it is Babylon. As we will see later in Revelation 18, and we will get there, several times Babylon is described as the great city. And just to give you a heads up here, in chapters 17 and 18, beginning next week, we're going to backtrack a bit. We have to backtrack a bit to look at this Babylon in much greater detail. Okay? Don't want to confuse anybody. So as I see it, this great earthquake splits Babylon into three parts. It's a total ruin for the Antichrist. It's the end of his empire. But not only that, the earthquake also destroys the cities of the nations that were in league with him. Assuming this is literal, and that's how I see it, assuming it's literal, this would essentially be the end of all human kingdoms, human governments, making way, making way for Christ to set up his own earthly kingdom. Now notice we are told that Babylon was remembered before God, which takes us back to the first time we are told that God remembered. Back in Genesis chapter 8, we were told that God remembered Noah. Remember that? Remember Noah and all that was with him in the ark. He remembered Noah in his mercy. But here, God remembers Babylon in his fierce wrath. In verse 20, as part of this 
final shaking of the earth. God changes its geographical features by causing every island to sink and every mountain to be leveled. I mean, this is an extreme makeover. That's what this is. This is an extreme makeover where everything about the earth to include its geographical features are changed. For the unrepentant people, there's no place to escape to and there's no place to hide. Can't go hide in a cave in a mountain. And then the sky literally falls on top of them in the form of huge hailstones that weighed about a hundred pounds each. That's a lot of ice. And what was their response? They cursed God. They cursed God. I want to circle back to what was said in verse 17. When the seventh bowl was poured, a loud voice from heaven said, It is done. It is done. Judgment is done. I was reminded that when Jesus hung on the cross in torment and agony, at the very end, he said something very similar. He said, It is finished. It is finished. That too, that too was a statement about God's judgment. Jesus took the full wrath of God's judgment upon himself on that cross. so that we would not have to experience it. And knowing this truth should prompt a decision from each of us. We can accept what Jesus has done for us and choose God's forgiveness, or we can reject Him even defy Him and choose God's fairness. If you do not choose God's forgiveness only found in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then by default, hear me, by default, you choose God's fairness. And you don't want that. 
You don't want that. For just like these unrepentant people during the tribulation period, you will get what you deserve. That's what fairness implies. It is terrible. And it is inescapable. Let's pray. Father, your word was a hard word. A very hard word. There was no way I could wrap it up and put a bow on it. Very hard. Very terrifying. But it's also the truth. It's also the truth. Father, I thank you as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a follower of the Lord, I won't have to experience any of this. I thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for those who might even be on the fence. Even Jesus said, either you are for me or you are against me. There is no fence. It's that cut and dry, isn't it, Lord? Father, I pray even now that you would just move in the hearts of people to draw them to yourself. To accept the truth of God for what it is. To accept your grace and your mercy and your love and your forgiveness. To reject that is unimaginable. And it's terrible. So Father, move a move amongst us this morning. Help us to experience your presence, Lord. Draw us to you. Father, may you be honored and glorified. Father, I'd also pray in light of what we have seen here that you would help us to be about your business of sharing the truth of God's forgiveness and grace and mercy to a lost and dying world. Help us, Lord, to put aside our fears, our anxiety. And help us, Lord God, to act on the truth. For it is a terrible terrible truth. May you be honored and glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some time ago, I I, uh, I think I saw it here, actually. I saw a, a, one of those Bible tracts or maybe a pamphlet, something like that. I think it was from uh, North Point Church. 
and the title the title of the pamphlet was something like um, "Good People Don't Go to Heaven." Forgiven people do. Have you ever seen that pamphlet? Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. That's true. The people in heaven are forgiven people. And the people in hell are those who've rejected that forgiveness. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? Pretty brutal. But that's the truth. It's the simple truth. People in hell have rejected God's grace and His mercy and His love and His forgiveness. They've rejected Him. They've rejected Him. And as we saw this morning, there is a terrible, terrible consequence for that. I want no part of that. I want no part of that at all. I thank God for His forgiveness. In spite, in spite of me, I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible person. In spite of me, Christ forgave me. Even though I was yet a sinner, rebellious against God, wanting to do my own thing, my own way. At my worst, Christ died for me. Isn't that amazing? And you. That's how much He loves us. We can't reject that. He gave His life, His very life. The sinless Son of God gave His life for you and me. That is love. That is love. We can't reject that. We can't reject that. If you're here this morning and you do not know the love of Christ, you do not understand the forgiveness that He offers you, I would love to talk with you and to help you understand that, to introduce you to Him. He loves you that much. He loves you. There's something else on your heart, another burden. I'd love to pray with you. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you here. 
I'll admit this was a tough passage today. Tough passage. But sometimes the truth is tough, isn't it? And i got to preach it. So as Larry leads us in a, in a song, however the Lord moves you this morning, I just ask that you be obedient to Him and you respond to Him as He leads. Thank you for coming uh, this morning. and. It's just a joy to see you. I'd like to just uh, close us in a prayer. I want to pray for our offering this morning and just remind you our baskets are back there near the door. And then also pray for our uh, fellowship afterwards as well. Father, I thank you for this time together for my brothers and sisters. And Heavenly Father, I pray even after we leave here that you would continue just to move in our hearts, move in our lives, Father, that you would just draw us to you. Father, help us to follow you with with whole hearts. I pray, Lord God, in our lives that Jesus would increase and that we would decrease. That Jesus would be our absolute everything. Father, I just I pray that for myself and for my friends and my family. Lord, uh, for our offering this morning, Lord God, I pray that you would just help us to be cheerful givers. That you'd help us as a church, Father, to use your money wisely. It is your money. Father, bless the gift and the giver. And Father, for our fellowship afterward, Lord God, I just pray that you would just bless the food to our bodies. And Father, more importantly, that you just bless the fellowship with one another. May you be honored and glorified. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.